0: kind of a chunkier note sheet than I've provided in the past, um, just because I want you to have the material um, and a couple of fill-in-the-blanks there. Uh, so it's always a tricky topic, uh, jumping into um, how to deal with the Old Testament law, because we've had significant um, interaction between the Testaments as well as uh, different objections and applications of it uh, over the course of the centuries um but i wanted to first address the approach that you're most likely to encounter in a lot of the dealings with it um and then propose um a, a different way that's not my own but uh, i think better um addresses uh interpretational consistency, let's put it that way, Um, despite the helpfulness of this. So the traditional approach, normally they categorize the Old Testament laws in three different ways, Um, the first of which would be moral laws, so that's the first thing right there for you, and so if I read it straight through, we're defined as those that dealt with timeless truths regarding God's intention for human behavior. So, like an example of this are the ones we probably are most familiar with like, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Old Testament law, pretty universal, and it's restated in the New Testament. Um, the secondary category that uh, the Old Testament laws will be placed into are the civil laws. So, they'll deal with the, the country's legal system of Israel courts, economics, land, crime, punishment, all of those types of things. Um, Like law and order, ancient Israel edition, I guess. Um, And then thirdly, the ceremonial laws. So that's sacrifices, festivals, all of the priest's activities, um, any instructions for the temple and all of that. And... uh, Like, for example, they are instructed, and they would not be keeping the law if they disobeyed in Deuteronomy 16, where they're commanded to celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after they've gathered the produce of their threshing floor and wine press. They would be in disobedience if they did not obey that to the T. Um... And There's a lot of benefit to looking at the laws in this way, um, in that you can get a good idea for at least the varying um, usages of certain laws, uh, but the problem with this approach, and we'll move pretty quickly through these, those blanks there, is that it's too ambiguous and too inconsistent to be a valid approach to interpreting Scripture, and there's two reasons for that. Um, one, these distinctions are arbitrarily applied to the text based on what we perceive their uh, categorization to be. So, uh, and the text themselves don't break them up in these categories. So you could have uh, verses back like love your neighbor as yourself and uh, hit the festivals the way that I tell you to, back to back, and they're never separated Um, out in the law itself. So in an attempt to understand um, their usages, uh, we have to arbitrarily apply them to a certain extent. And there are a number of examples, which I can touch on later if if we get to it, that really have a problem fitting into these categories so neatly. Um, So with the non-textual nature of that and how arbitrary you have to be with the distinctions, um, to categorize all the laws in these three ways, um, it doesn't offer us a, a very solid foundation to either obey or ignore any of any particular law. Um, just with that system. So, what's proposed from the text that we've been using, uh, largely working through these things, is um, well, there's two things to deal with first. It's especially with the Old Testament law is one. Is the context of the law is that it is in the context of a narrative, so in opposition to something like the book of Proverbs, where you have a bunch of collected wisdom sayings that are kind of detached from a narrative the the law is inextricably linked to the narrative of Israel. Um, so uh, I think the phrase that he uses in the in the book is is firmly embedded in the story of Israel's theological history. So it's a part of the narrative that runs from Genesis 12 all the way to Second Kings 25. Um, so it's presented; uh, it's not presented by itself, like I said, as some tina- timeless universal code, but it's presented as a part of their theological narrative and describe how it describes how God delivered Israel from Egypt and established them in the promised land as his people. So um, it, it being such an integral part of Israel's story of the exodus, their wandering and their conquest, um, our interpretive approach to the law has to take that into account. So we'll remember the importance of the context. The law is a part of a story, and the story provides an important context interpreting the law. Um, the second context there is the covenant context. So this will be uh, where we really set up the foundation for its interaction with the New Testament and the New Covenant. Um, the law is tightly intertwined with the Mosaic Covenant. And so the, the first little point there under you. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant is closely associated with with Israel's conquest and occupation of the land. So the covenant provides the framework uh, by which Israel can occupy and live prosperously in the promised land with God. And the close connection between the covenant and the land is stressed over and over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy. That is uh, maybe the largest theme is the covenant and getting into the land, obedience to it. And then that'll lead us into the second point there, that the blessings from the Mosaic covenant are conditional. So we have constant warnings throughout Deuteronomy explaining to Israel over and over again that obedience to the covenant will bring blessing, but disobedience will bring curses. Um, and punishment, and uh, Deuteronomy 28 in particular is explicit. Um, if you read that on your own time, verses 1 through 14 are like the list of blessings um, that could be, will be afforded to Israel if they obey um, the terms of the covenant, meaning the law, um, but the verses the 15 through 68, a significant portion following that, spell out the terrible consequences if they don't. So two points, it's associated with conquest and being in the land, and they're conditional. Um, Three, the Mosaic covenant is no longer a functional covenant. So New Testament believers are no longer under the old Mosaic covenant. Hebrews chapters 8 through 9 They make it pretty clear that Jesus came as the mediator of a new covenant, which replaced the old covenant. So the language in chapter 8, verse 13 of Hebrews, is in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's Hebrews 8, 13. Um, the The Old Testament law presented the terms by which Israel could receive blessings in the land under the old covenant. Um, So that raises a few questions. Uh, If the Old Covenant is no longer valid, how can the laws that made up the covenant still be valid? And if the Old Covenant is obsolete, uh, should we not also view the system of laws that comprise the Old Covenant as obsolete? Um, We'll come to some answers to those questions shortly. Um, uh, Number four, The Old Testament law as a part of the Mosaic covenant is no longer applicable over us as law. And there is a lot of New Testament scripture to deal with this. So um, Paul makes it clear that Christians are not under the Old Testament law. Like example in Galatians uh, chapter 2 verses 15 and 16 he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Um, In Romans 7, he also says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has raised, uh, been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. And back in Galatians 3, Paul says again, so then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer uh, uh, under a guardian. So many, many instances, Paul very forcefully argues against Christians returning to the Old Testament law. And so in our interpretation and application of that law, we have to be cautious to heed Paul's uh, admonition um, because now that we are freed from the law through Christ, we do not want to put people back under the law through our interpretive method. Um, And so in an attempt to avoid that, I number five there, we must interpret the law through the grid of New Testament teaching. So surely in the in the famous passage of 2 Timothy 3.16, um, which says, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, Paul's including in his phrase, all scripture, the law as a part of God's word. Um, so the value of the Old Testament law is eternal, Um, But we should study and seek to apply all of it. However, um, the law no no longer functions uh, as the terms of a covenant for us. Uh, It no longer applies as direct, um, literal law for us. So the coming of Christ as the fulfillment of the law has changed that forever. However, the Old Testament legal material does contain rich principles and lessons for living that are still relevant uh, when they're interpreted through New Testament teaching. Um, So probably move through that pretty quick before uh, we jump into the other stuff. Any questions, anything I need to clarify or repeat? So moving pretty quick. So... Comment, um, the Old Testament law as part of the Mosaic Covenant is no longer applicable over us as law but as believers. Um, for non-believers, though, um, it would still apply? Um, the, the way it applies now is uh, the way the Holy Spirit uh, functions in the world. Um, he convicts the world of sin, and we don't know sin apart from the law. But the law can only reveal sin as a mirror. This is similar to what the way Paul describes it in Romans. He's like, it can't produce righteousness with God. It can only reveal sin. Even more so, he says that uh, when you get the law, it entices you to sin. Um, and he goes on this long argument about Some people begin to say because the law entices people to sin that it is itself sin and it is in itself evil. Uh, It's kind of an odd thing, but that's what he's dealing with in Romans, right? Um, It would be no similar than like, well, if it's going to entice me to do this, just trying to obfuscate a responsibility in that way. Um, But it doesn't have no effect at all in the world. However, righteousness with God is not obtained through keeping the law, um, especially under the new covenant. Um, in one sense, it, it uh, would result in material blessing for Israel when they kept it and would try to move into the promised land. Um, but even still, now today, the result would be the same for unbelievers uh, as it was before, in my estimation. It would still be like a yoke, it'd be a mirror, like this is what we see in ourselves. It entices them to sin all the more um, in rebellion, and uh, it will ultimately be the thing that condemns people if they remain in it. Yeah. I can't think of the verse, but somewhere Jesus specifically said something about the law. Do you remember what that is? You're talking about the, um, his fulfillment of the law? No. No, absolutely. Here's um, it up. You got any search words for that? Maybe... Jesus' law. <laughs> uh, well, that's just the one that's most notable to me. Is uh, He says, I've not come to um, abolish the law, but to f- fulfill it. And um, the misconception about that is you even have some people um, falsely claiming, falling into what we would consider antinomianism, where they say we are free to sin freely because Christ is fulfilled all these things and done away with the law. Um, The intention of what Christ was meaning with rather than um, live, rather than him saying, I have come not to abolish the law, but live under the law, that would be much different than what he actually says, which he says, not to abolish, but to fulfill. So he doesn't come to live under the law as to um, achieve the material blessings under the Mosaic Covenant. He does something greater than that. He fulfills the full righteous um, requirement of the law so that he can be priest, sacrifice, um, and king, all of that stuff to do away with the requirements of the Old Testament law while still maintaining the truths of the, new, of the law of Christ, as they'll call it, or the law of the Spirit, um, by giving us new hearts with the law written on them um, under the new covenant. Uh, so get into a lot of, (laughs) a lot of, um, tricky Christological stuff, um, dealing with that text, but it's probably the most, one of the most direct references he has to it. But in that text as well, he doesn't have in mind just the mosaic law. He has all of scripture because he says, I've come to not to abolish the law and the prophets. It's the shorthand for the all of scripture. Um, yeah, just as a side note, if you ever see that in there, they, the reason they would refer to them that way is they'd be like on individual scrolls. So the law would be the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. That would be on one scroll. And they'd have all the prophets and the wisdom literature on another. So they say the law and prophets. That's why they have them split in two. It's like they're thinking big scrolls with all of that stuff on it. Um, but, yeah, so any other thoughts or questions before we jump into applying it a, l- a little bit? Because there's a lot here, and uh, I think a lot of interesting topics for discussion nonetheless. I'm sure we can arouse some other questions as we move. So, the uh, the writers of the text that we're using to guide us, um, they pose... The method we've been learning for multiple weeks as a, a superior method, I tend to agree with them because of the consistency of it, and it's the interpretive journey. So if you've been here a couple of weeks, you've probably heard this by now, the interpretive journey. And I've put them back here on your sheet with some space to take notes as we walk through um, a particular passage that uh, is more difficult for the traditional method to deal with, um, but with the, the most notable uh, change to the interpretive journey for the sake of interpreting the Old Testament law. So I'll walk through that briefly just to remind you of the steps, and we'll get to the fourth one where I'll have you fill in those blanks uh, on, the, on the fourth uh, step. And then we'll walk back through each step with a text, okay? So just as a reminder, step one, we need to grasp the text in, in their town So what did the text mean to the biblical audience? Try to understand the text by summarizing the original situation, um, meaning the historical cultural context and the meaning for those people at that time. Um, Then we would move to measure how far do we need to bridge, what's the width of the river to cross, and determine what the differences between that audience are and, and us. Then three, we'll cross the principalizing bridge by discovering what is the theological principle in the text and then list those principles communicated. And then step four, we'll consult the biblical map and we'll see how our theological principle fits with the rest of the Bible. And we need to then ask ourselves, does the New Testament teaching modify or qualify this principle? And if so, how? And we'll do that before we can get to the final stage of applying it by grasping the text in our town. How should individual Christians today live out that theological principle? Okay, so uh, the text I want us to walk through um, is Leviticus 5, 2 through 6. So feel free to turn there. Um, I'll read it out here in a moment, and we'll begin walking through it, okay? So... Okay, Leviticus 2, chapter 5, I mean 5, verse 2 through 6. So if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be, "...with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed..." He shall bring the Lord as his, uh, to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb, or a goat for a sin offering. Okay, so seemed like there could be a lot there to deal with. And first we'll need to begin with the broader context of Leviticus. Okay, so Leviticus may, uh, largely deals with how the Israelites are to live with the holy God dwelling in their midst. That's the first difference. How are they to approach God? How should they deal with sin and unclean things in light of having the holy God living among them, tabernacling with them? Um, And this passage of Leviticus um, uh, is a portion that deals primarily with purification offerings. Um, So it'll be how to make oneself pure again after becoming ritually unclean. Um, Just preceding this is chapter four, which primarily deals with how the leaders will do this. And here in chapter five, it deals with how regular people will do this. Um, So I think the, the biggest part of that is Uh, This passage declares to the Israelites, if I'm summarizing, that uh, if they touch any unclean thing, they are defiled regardless of the context. So in order to be purified, they must um, uh, confess their sin and bring the priest a lamb or a goat to be sacrificed on their behalf. And so the priest will sacrifice the animal for them, and they will be clean again and can approach God and worship him. So in order to approach God and worship him, they need to be clean. They become unclean in any way. They have to, once they're aware of it, confess it, and there must be a blood sacrifice for it. So that's the original situation. So let's take a moment, and we'll do step two. Let's measure the width of the the river to cross, okay? Okay. Um, what are some of the differences between their situation and our situation? Like, feel free to bring out anything. What do you think the main differences are in the context of approaching God? No tabernacle. Okay, yeah, so no tabernacle that's um, a physical place. Rather, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. He tabernacles amongst us, in us. Okay, so that's one big one. Yeah, no animal sacrifice, because Christ has become the once-for-all sacrifice to atone for sin. No unclean animals. Yes, no, no unclean animals anymore. We're not defiled by out external sources. And there's one more in any, anything different.: They have a priest who does this, the atonement on their behalf. Yes. We no longer need priests on our behalf because Christ is our priest. so this summer all that, we're not under the Old Covenant. Our sin is now covered by the death of Christ. We have direct access to the Father through Christ, and no longer need human priests as mediators. so pretty simple enough. Um, Quick step. So now we need to try to move towards theological principles from that. Um, Let's see, uh, let's do the same thing. What are some theological principles that we see from this text? Um, What's present in there? Suppose what's the end goal of this whole passage of Scripture? make something clean that's unclean. Yeah, so purification is one. And why? Why must it be purified? Because God is holy. Yes. So God's holiness is the backdrop behind this section here. So when he dwells among his people, his holiness demands that his people keep separate from sin and unclean things. And so if they fail and become unclean, they must be purified by a blood sacrifice. I think part of what I see in this too is like when people come to know Christ, they don't always know what God's will is in every area of their life. Yeah. And as they mature, they're going to find out that certain things they're doing are wrong. Yep. And the, what this says here is repent, seek forgiveness. Yeah, yeah I really like that... Uh, well i guess I guess it's not like because I like it, I guess, but uh it's consistent in the New Testament as well that when sin is uh, made known to someone, confession uh must occur, and so it's um, sin is seen because of the law, confession of sin, atonement for sin, reconciliation um consistent in that text, and so um Let's see here, uh, yeah. So if we if we describe um, the theological principles in the terms that we just did, that that God is holy, and when He dwells among His people, He demands holiness from them, and if sin occurs, atonement must occur. Unclean must become clean. Um, we've expressed that principle in a way that would fit comfortably in the original context, and our context where in both instances God is holy demands holiness from his people, um, demands separation from sin and if we fail we uh, have the an atoning sacrifice and confession and can have reconciliation in both situations um, let's uh, that kind of blurs us into a bit of step four so let's uh, consult the biblical map okay So if we cross into the New Testament, uh, we examine what it teaches on this subject. So as you said, Jim, God no longer dwells among us by residing in the tabernacle, but he lives within us through the indwelling of the Spirit. Um, His presence still demands holiness, and he demands that we do not sin and that we stay separate from unclean things. But the New Testament redefines the terms clean and unclean. Um, in Mark 7 um, Jesus says there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him and he continues on a few uh, verses later he says what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So in other words, if we, we who are under the new covenant um, are not made unclean by touching dead animals, we become unclean by impure thoughts and by sinful actions and so the, t- the text in Leviticus would also stress, like I said before, that an individual is unclean even if he or she um, contacted the unclean item by accident. Uh, the principle, however, that particular principle does not appear in the New Testament. So sinful actions and thoughts that are unintentional, if there is such a thing that there are unintentional sinful thoughts, still make us unclean, right? So the new covenant has changed the way that uh, we as God's people deal with sin and uncleanness. Like we don't bring our own lambs and goats, like we said before, uh, to atone for sin, uh, to restore us to clean. We don't bring blood sacrifices. Now our sins are covered by the sacrifice of Christ. Death of Christ washes away our sin, changes our status from unclean to clean. Um, but like I said, confession of sin, however, is still important under the new covenant. Um, like one of my favorites, 1 John 1, 9. If you you confess your sins, he's um, faithful to forgive. Um, That's just as it was under the Old Covenant. Um, Confession of sin, uh, reconciliation. Uh, Since that's the case, however, um, a concrete expression of that theological principle for today's New Testament audience uh, could sound like this, okay? So we'd say, Stay away from sinful actions and impure thoughts because the holy God lives within you. If you do commit unclean acts or think unclean thoughts, then confess this sin and receive forgiveness through the death of Christ. So that would be a way that we could express that theological principle that would still be consistent with the Old Testament law, accounting for the ways in which the New Testament modifies it. Um, and an appropriate way to get us to point 0.5, which would be applying that theological principle. Um, so any questions before we jump on to the application there or how we got there um, through those steps? Nothing. OK. Um, step five. Now we're going to grasp the text in our town. Um, for Christians today, like how do you live out that, this theological principle? Um, if we try to identify specific, like individual applications of the expression of the, the theological principle we developed in step four, um, there can be many possible applications. Um, but one, for example, that would be a big deal in our current society would be the issue of pornography. So many Christians now have easy access to this material in the privacy of their homes, in virtually every electronic device that is known to man. Um, And this text teaches us that the holiness of God, who dwells within us, demands that we lead clean lives. So pornography falls clearly into the category that the New Testament defines as unclean and so such an action is a violation of God's holiness and it hinders one's ability to approach and worship or fellowship with God which was the end goal of the sacrifice in the first place in Leviticus. So therefore uh, we are to stay away from it in the same way that they were to stay away from unclean animals or any unclean thing that would make them ritually unclean and uh, realizing that it makes us unclean, um, that it offends the holy God who dwells within us and disrupts our fellowship with him. Um, if we do fall into this sin, we must confess the sin, and through the death of Christ, you'll be forgiven, and your fellowship will be restored. Um, so that's just one potential application of the theological principle we could pull from that text. And uh, I think it's a a nice one to to see how it uh, it approaches, um, you know, offers material that we can see is clearly um, modified slightly by New Testament teaching with Jesus, and arrives at a more um, universal principle that would cover both and the intention of both, um, without um, potentially uh, harming the use of the Old Testament text by failing to recognize its covenant context with the covenant context that we would live in now, which we live in now. And so, of course, we could have applications for greed, uh, envy, slander. We could probably insert any of the ones that Jesus even implied, uh, brought up in Mark 7, Um, and similarly say that insert sin here, we need to stay away from it, it makes us unclean, offends God, who's within us, disrupts our fellowship with him. If we fall into it, we confess it, through the death of Christ, we can be forgiven and have fellowship restored. Um, so, any any questions? There thoughts on that, um, or any uh, additions? Anyone? This couldn't feel. Well, I even cut down a lot of what we probably could have discussed. I still feel like I'm just shooting out of a fire hose uh, to get through all of this because um, you're trying to do a task that's a, a hearty task of accounting for uh, Old Testament history, uh, New Testament history, dealing with cultural context to cultural context to another cultural context to us and then trying to be as observant as you can to get as enough nuance into the theological principle that would be consistent from both texts and then arrive an application that logically follows from it. It can be a long process. (laughs) Uh, I know why, or I feel it more, why uh, when we first heard hermeneutics, I mean actually it was like the first day um, our professor said that for early pastors his recommendation for the number of hours they need to prep a sermon each week was 60. He said, once you get really good at it, you can do 40. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) man. I really, you really feel that. uh, I think when you're doing something like this, where you're having to account for a lot of stuff to try to be faithful and clear in the text. um, But it's obviously a worthwhile endeavor. I'll tell you something funny. My brother, his first brother, older brother, his first wife, before they got married, he, he says, Well, he only works like three hours in the church <laughs> Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. Oh. He only works three hours. That <laughs> was pastor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, uh uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sit up and say there aren't guys that I think probably only work that much, considering what they put out, but, uh, um, it's always a, a struggle uh, when uh, when I see the guys that I think that are um, uh, at at the highest level in w- whatever way I'd estimate it on any given week, um, normally their level of preparedness uh, it's like the it's like an iceberg thing where what we get it on Sunday morning is still just the tip of that of what the preparation was because the foundation was so broad to get you to that point um, and that's what we're trying to do, I guess, with this in a short amount of time with a small text. But, um, could this be like, because reading Leviticus, it's pretty dry stuff. And, um, and you've made like a great connection between just the uncleanliness and, and then, you know, relating it to like inward sin. But I mean, could you do that for pretty much the whole book of Leviticus? Like, when we re- read through it, you know, like in a year. It's like okay, the application here is God hates sin. <laughs> God is holy. Like uh not as cleanly. Um this is why they'd advocate for this particular method as well. So like we can take um let's take like Leviticus nineteen um nineteen. So nineteen nineteen. Um, for example. Um That says, uh, you you shall keep my statutes. Uh, You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not uh, sow your field with two kinds of seed. Uh, You shall wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. You shall not. Um, So yes and no to what you're saying. So it's absolutely necessary to understand the themes. But we'll miss a bit, Um, I think, if we broaden them to, oh, well, uh he hates this, he likes that. Let's uh, move on. Um I know it can be meticulous, but I suppose um if we try to couch it in its context of complete and utter separation from all of the surrounding nations and their their idols. Um I think some pedantry is fine, I suppose. Um but the the main central theme of Leviticus being God's holiness, um, is that uh teaching that holy things must be separate from profane or common things, the hard separation. So like we may not understand all the nuances of like a command like that against mixing cloth material or mixing seed. But we do know that God thought it was important enough because he related it to his holiness. Um, and so in some way, all the laws relate to separation um, uh, from unholiness uh, and are trying to connect to overarching principle of his holiness and separation. And so, like, with a kind of law, uh, uh, if, if I refer back to the, the traditional method, if you try to take a law like that, I mean, what category is that law in? Like, it's certainly not like a civil law where it's dealing with um, property rights or anything um definitely not um a moral one per se well actually no hold on excuse me it's definitely not like a uh a uh, ceremonial law because it's not uh, it's unrelated to their religious society in any way um in uh, explicit terms um although it would appear more near maybe to some of the, c- the ceremonies and the sacrifices but like the the overarching uh, themes of his holiness, as well as the separation of the common from uh the whole for the sake of uh, testifying his holiness, um, those all have theological significances to a theocratic society that is definitely a moral issue, so they would see um, it as a mixture of the three probably where um To maintain their society, they might consider it a part of the civil law. Um, To stay in line with the whole law in their religious uh, rightness, they might consider it a ceremonial law. But they would also consider the maintaining of the theological importance of everything that they do a moral one. Um, uh, That's where dealing with that can be confusing. But um, I think that... uh, you can probably arrive at a significant portion in conjunction with what you said to parts of Leviticus to say God is utterly holy and he wanted to display it in a certain way and this is why he chose to under the Old Covenant in the context of uh, surrounding pagan nations. Um. I mean, I, I just, you know, you threw, threw 19 at it so I was just reading down there. I thought the was 28. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves, yep. which I would say that's a very popular thing today. Yeah. How does that relate to the Old Testament law? It's yeah. Like- it's, uh, yeah, so that to me that's primarily a similar deal with um, do not do things that are explicitly intended to worship other gods. So that's why I think there would be plenty of space like in a modern time to be like, well, I'm going to have tattoos on my body and I'm not in disobedience to God um, because I haven't done that to worship uh, a pagan idol. Um, Because under the old covenant, regardless of it, it would have been, they definitely have in mind the surrounding tattooing and scarring that they see around them. That were part of their religious stuff. That's why the blur of the, the moral laws with some of these, they would view that as a moral thing to not do that because those are symbols of worshiping the other gods. Um, that's done away with now. So you could, in some cases, I mean, there's definitely still like uh, various groups of people that mark their bodies, that paint their bodies, that tattoo their bodies to worship other gods that would still be explicitly different because they're worshiping that god with that intended uh, act. Um, uh, it, it could get blurrier, like if you have um, some syncretism going on, which it's not advisable, but I understand why it happens, where you'll have a people group maybe recently converted in an area that's very unfriendly to Christianity where they will meld some of their practices with uh, Christian theological principles and try to blend in or try to just meld them together to be more palatable um, and not die. Uh, You see that a lot in Muslim countries as well where they'll just be secret. Um, It's a form of syncretism in that they'll just remain Christians and attend mosque gatherings and pray there, but uh, they're not praying to Allah anymore uh, out of fear of dying. Um, so that's to me that's where the blur would become you can in a free society like ours um, so to speak you could definitely have a justification um, to tattoo yourself um, because it's not necessarily a law but you could still be doing it sinfully Um, yeah so (laughs)